Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer here in Australia, and welcome to another episode of The Good Oil. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's exactly what we try and do with this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. And today's guest, as always, is someone who really knows what's going on. I'm going to bring you a conversation with Joe Mager, a former colleague of mine, a very, very, very good investor. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. In fact, I'll do it now. Joe uh, ran the incredibly successful Motley Fool Inside Value investing newsletter in the US for years, was literally the top investment newsletter in the States. He comes to Australia. He runs Motley Fool Pro, one of our investment services here to stunning success, and then goes on to co-found and lead Lakehouse Capital, the Motley Fool's funds management arm down here, and again, ends up being top of the pops. Welcome to the good oil, Joe. Thanks, Scott. That was a great intro. I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I didn't know what the good oil was, so now I you appreciate do. it. There you go. And I'm glad, well, yeah, of course, you've, I mean, you make that up. You've listened to every single episode thus far. I know that of you, Joe. So you're pretending, oh, which, well, is, which is kind of you. Of but, course, um, other yeah. than as I speak through the intros. <laughs> now, Joe is, as I said, literally one of the very, very best investors I know. This is an absolute treat for me. And it's a treat for me for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Joe has moved back to his native United States, so we don't get to catch up. Also, too, while Joe was at The Motley Fool, our internal rules meant that Joe and I couldn't talk investing. So Joe and I had spent, I don't know, three, four, five years working together, chatting investing almost literally every workday. And then because he changed roles, we couldn't do that anymore. So I'm actually looking forward to just having a no-holds-barred conversation where we don't have to not talk about stuff. It's complete cold turkey. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, we're talking and stuff, messaging all the time to, yeah, um, yeah. to literally not having a single conversation about stocks. Don't mention it, the war. Yeah. For, for, six for, years. Six yeah, years. For a short time, we could talk US stocks at least. And then Lakehouse launched a US. So like, okay, we can't do that. Either. So, yeah. Bad. <laughs> one of those one of those stories. Mate, we'll talk about you. We'll talk about your background, all lots of good stuff. And of course, uh, we will get your take on what's happening on the markets. Our listeners want to know that. And there is no better bloke to ask than you. So let's start with that, mate. Just just as as a top line, as we as we get our way into the podcast, uh, what on earth is happening, particularly with tech stocks, growth stocks? Call them what you want. I don't love labels, um, but you have to be able to kind of call them something. And it's fair to say those stocks considered growth and tech by the market have had an absolutely brutal. What is it? Six, maybe even nine months now. Um, what's what's your take on what's going on? Yeah, it's been really ugly. And just to go back, um, I am. I appreciate you having me on and all the kind words and I I do really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, look, I think a number of things have unfolded around the same time and particularly with technology stocks. On the one hand, you've got inflation driving interest rates higher and interest rate expectations higher. So, you know, for anyone who's not an investing wonk, which is most people, <laughs> you know, what that means is the cost of borrowing, cost of capital goes up. The opportunity cost goes up. So if you're investing in companies where most of the value in the company is based on the earnings far into the future, which is typically the case for high growth companies, they are disproportionately affected, kind of like a seesaw from changes in rates. So that's why high-flying stocks and particularly like, you know, high-growth Nasdaq stocks, some of the best-run stocks, BSX, have just been hammered. And what's been interesting about that is until, what, a week of the 20th, whatever day that was, and you know I'm terrible. It was, <laughs> but around then, it yeah. was when the S&P 500 tipped into like official bear market territory mm. for first time. But if yeah. you talk to anyone who is investing in high growth stocks, they're like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> only now? <laughs> Welcome to the party now. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like there are a lot of really high quality, high growth tech companies that are off more than 50%, 60%, some more than 70%. Um, there's some lower quality ones that are down even further from their highs. And so, you know, a big part of that is higher expectations around inflation, um, higher rates, but then also some of these companies are rolling over some very difficult comparisons and year on your growth rates from year before. So 
you know, you look back to the calendar second quarter, calendar third quarter, 2021, that was kind of like a peak growth rate for a lot of e-commerce companies and a lot of digital first companies and particularly ones that were super pro covid Um, now these companies are rolling off of that really difficult comparison at the same time where, you know, opportunity costs have gone up, <laughs> rates have gone up. So, and you know, the economy is getting a bit softer, both from the supply side, but also, you know, inflation is kind of nipping at consumption demand. So you put it all together and it's just a you know recipe for bad hangover, but you know, I will say all that and then we'll keep going, but I, I have been a buyer of stocks in the past couple of weeks. So you know, that gives you a sense of how I'm thinking. Mate, that is, that is a great summary and I've made about five different points that I'll try and get to as we, as we go through cool, the rest thanks, of this podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're done. We're done. <laughs> the bite-sized edition of the good oil, mate. Um, let, let's 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 wind it back a little bit. I, I gave a bit of an intro as to you as an investor. I talked about your Native America, both uh, pre and post. You you ran Motley Fool Inside Value. I I'm going to suggest to you that I have a lot of people who know you or know about you say to me. So this guy used to run Inside Value back when you and I both used to have a little more hair. Uh, for those who can't see Joe right now, Joe is absolutely as bald as I am. Uh, so uh, you used to run Inside Value, super valuey investment newsletter, value investing, Warren, you know, Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, all the usual cliches. All of a sudden, and, and not all of a sudden actually, but, but a decade or so later, uh, you're running a small cap growth focused um, investment fund, managed fund here in Australia. And now, yeah, it's a little, it's an unusual it's not. It's, it's not. It's not a straight line. And, and so I, I'm just by way of kind of getting a bit of the, the Joe Mega background because as we talk, people will understand your expertise just by listening to your answers. But it's also worth. I've already said you, literally Inside Value was the number one investment newsletter in the US bar none, which is astonishing. Um, so gr- you know, again, congratulations. But maybe you can talk to us about your investing journey from. Uh, I know you were at uni. You're interested in investing in business. You, did, you worked in finance for a little bit of time. Uh, then all of a sudden you're you're an investor. Then all of a sudden you go from again the kind of stodgy and maybe it was a stodgy, which is maybe the secret, but the stodgy value old bloke investing through all of a sudden this you know Australian small cap tech. Uh, tell me about that journey, if you would. So it is an unusual one, but um, I, I think along the way it felt like a fairly natural progression. So to go back in time, my introduction to investing was through my grandfather and. Uh, I won't belabor my life story. I was born at Fulton County Hospital. No, no. And <clears throat> he got me into investing at an early age with a really big focus on investing in high quality companies and people behind them being quality people, really strong balance sheets, and just thinking a lot about the kind of people you want to do business with. And That's a pretty so strong start, kind of my, quietly. <laughs> what's that? That's a pretty strong start. That's a great way to get going. I was, I was very fortunate to have yeah. that experience and exposure. And then uh, years later, uh, he passed away and I managed some of my grandmother's money. And, you know, for any of you out there who managed money for your widowed you know, grandmother, you know, you, risk management's pretty high on the list, right? So, you know, I was very conscious of that as an investor. Um, and then when I came to The Fool, uh, which I was super excited about with my dream job and, and love doing, you know, amazing group of people, fantastic 15 years, family companies. Um, you know, over time, uh, I was exposed more and more to, to growth investing. And particularly, you know, I think if you look at David Gardner, um, co-founder of Molly Fool, he's now a step back from day-to-day self, but this for listeners got the state well. Um, David's a phenomenal investor. And David invested I thought very differently than I did, and he did it very well. And Tom, one day, so Tom Gardner, uh, David's brother, that CEO of the firm, you know, we were having a long conversation one day about you know my own development, and he was like, you know, Joe, I think you're really strong. As a personal challenge, I'd like you to go and break down David's ten biggest winners ever, and study them, and come back and tell me what you learned from it. And he's like, no, of course. You know, it's it's 10, right? So we're talking about small sample size and, you know, Tom's a rational guy. He's like, but, you know, there's only so much you can take from that. But, but have a go at it and just see what you think. No, he didn't say have a go. He's not Australian. That's how I talk now. <laughs> so uh, I went off and did that. And I, I came back out of it with a much healthier respect for David's process 
to be honest. And I felt like there were a lot more consistent themes from, from what drove performance at his biggest winners. And so I started incorporating more of that into to how I invested. And I think that that was kind of happening around the time I got approached about coming to Australia uh, to work with you guys. And, um, you know, we really hit it off at the Berkshire meeting. And um, I always had a lot of respect for Bruce Jackson, you know, started the way you. And so the idea to come down here was super attractive and fun to me. Came down here, dove into a market I'd never been exposed to, all new companies, <clears throat> and working on small caps with Scott. And it was pretty wild west to be honestly. Um, and it's still small caps on the ASX is pretty, yeah. pew, pew, you know, like very small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also a very inefficient market. And, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of coal, but there's some diamonds in there and there have been some big winners, you know, on the small side of the ASX. And so as I got more focused on growth, I just happened to be more exposed to the smaller companies where, you know, there, there tends to be more growth and companies can be more mispriced than, than large caps. And, you know, those things just kind of kept, kept creeping along over time. And, you know, that's how I kept moving further and further towards growth. And I guess there are a couple other things, you know, is that they came to speak to me more, um, on the growth side. I mean, one is that when you're right, you're really right. And I liked the, the bigger magnitude that goes with that. Um, another is that I feel like growth investing is harder to factor and harder to, um, turn into, you can get value beta in a lot of different ways. So there, you know, to put this into like English, or, you know, people who are wonks again, um, there are plenty of exchange traded funds or index funds that are actively managed that essentially invest in, for example, statistically cheap stocks. And, you know, historically value investing is done well um, when, when executed, you know, patiently diligence. Um, but what I liked about growth is that there is a wider range of outcomes with growth investing versus value. So value, you know, the, the winners versus the losers in terms of, you know, percentages and, you know, ranges of outcomes, it's a much tighter range. So, you know, some people would look at that and say, that's good. I look at that and say, well, I don't like that because <laughs> if, if I think yeah. my, if the thing I think I do best, and I, I think it is the thing I do best is being essentially a business analyst and understanding the core economics of the business and this reinvestment potential and long-term profile, running, then I want to be in a position where I can add the most value by emphasizing that skill set and that part of the process. And if that's the case, then I want to be in a place where I have the widest range of outcomes and the most upside to be right. So that you know, probably gives a little more color around. Yeah, I kept getting further out on the growth curve than you know, in today, you know, investing in startups. So you know, definitely taking it to the logical extreme. As a long, long way from buying uh, stocks at discount to book value. It's uh, it and look at it, uh, listeners while while you listen to Joe speak. I, I really want to underscore this. There are very, very, very few people who will make a move from. I won't say you were ever a deep, deep value guy, but you're a value guy through to the other end of the growth curve smartly, thoughtfully. So, so many of us dig into what we believe in and we'll defend it at all costs. Joe has literally gone. You know what? There's something, something that works better over here. And not only that, you've done very, very well at both ends of that spectrum. As I said, Inside Value, top newsletter in the US. Lakehouse Capital, the small cap fund was, I think, was it the top fund in Australia? I think it was. Um, uh, you know, that, that uh, an in, in incredibly different di- different market, different style, different size. Um, so, you know, Joe's investing speaks for itself and you're hearing him speak for himself here um, really thoughtfully and eloquently and you will learn a lot from the rest of this conversation. So listen in. And if you're listening to this on two and a half speed, slow it down. You don't want to miss any of the good <laughs> stuff. Um, you, can't, you can't listen to two and a half speeds. God speaks way too quickly. <laughs> it would be way Oh, I've never been able to fix no that. No idea what's going <laughs> Mate, um, let's, let's, let's come back to, to the investing piece. You talked a lot about where we are right now. And I want to kind of unpack that a little bit if you, if you don't mind. Um, you talked about so much of the stuff. I'm going to take it almost backwards because uh, some of it wraps itself up. You talked about a lot of the a lot of the pro COVID stocks are having you know, are cycling on rough comparables. Last year was spectacularly good. 
this year they couldn't help but be down. Yeah. I'm curious as to when you look at that, separate if we can separate speaking of factors, if we can separate out the other stuff that you talked about, which we will get to. Just on that comps alone, was the market too excited then? Is it too depressed now about the comps specifically? Or was it right both times? And that's just a natural story because it's always tempting for us as humans to look back and say, well, the past was obviously right. And since then, there's been a change. So where we are now is relative to that 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 kind of hard stake in the ground. And it is a, a real stake in the ground. It was, it was a price. It was a level of sales. They are immutable numbers. But we kind of don't ever ask ourselves, was the starting point right? So I'm curious from your perspective, and I know it's different by company, but when the market looks at that, did it get overexcited then? Is it too depressed now or are both right? Yeah, that's a great question. And I totally agree that there's this happen. I was talking to um, an, an investor at the pool today I've known for a long time was very, very sharp, but I have a lot of respect for it. And he was kind of kicking himself for a couple decisions. And I was like, mate, like, you know, keep in mind that we're at what could be a pretty big blow here. You know, like yeah, we're pretty yeah, yeah. in fair market territory for high growth companies. So, you know, maybe cut yourself a little slack and, you know, see where we're at some stretch of road down the time to, to judge. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that valuations were too stretched in 2021 and you know you can definitely get um, <clears throat> you can it's easy to say that but when you look at a lot of the companies that did well out of COVID there's a big range of cyclical and structural growth factors there so if you look at a Peloton I, I personally never that was a thesis I never got excited about I know that people are um, but you know, to me, that was a pretty clear example of people being forced to work from home. You know, they're buying these devices. That's all great, but this 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 is not like a this is a pull forward in demand. Um, but it felt much more one off, similar to how you know there was a boom in toilet paper sales at Kohl's and Kohl's, <laughs> right? And it's not like end consumption really changed that much, um, but it pulled forward a lot. You know, it's similar to that versus the business, like, um, you know, you take a PayPal, which is way off ties, by the way. So I don't pretend like it's killing it. And their their growth is definitely slowed, but it's it's slowed, not gotten crushed. And I'd say what happened there was you had a lot of new users, a lot of new merchants come to the platform. And the platform became much more valuable because of the network effects around that feeds off itself. So, you know, in some cases things are off because growth is slowed and you've got higher rates. <clears throat> and I think you take like a PayPal and, you know, I'd look back on that and say, yeah, you know, could we have taken more off the table of that position in 2021? Yeah, probably. But, you know, back then too, we did, we exited our stake in Atlassian, Twilio, Okta, all businesses I love, M3. We love those businesses. They're fantastic. But they just got to levels where we just couldn't justify and hold them. So, you know, to some extent, we were like, well, you know, we did take stuff on, on valuation. Um, but again, you know, to flashback to answering your actual question, um, <laughs> instead of like defending decisions, uh, <laughs> I think that you go back then, you know, back then, I think the, the lesson that everybody talked about was never sell, right? And I never quite thought that was all the way true, but just like today, <clears throat> you know, I think everybody, it's, everybody's like, oh, cash is king, should have been obvious, you know, buy cheap stocks. And I'm like, well, <laughs> easy to say at a low, um, yeah. but, you know, the, the window, if you're a long-term investor, just to really dumb this, to make it as simple as possible is how I think of it. And maybe it's dumbing it down. And what, maybe what I'm saying is not this deep, brilliant insight, but if, the window to invest in great high quality growth companies is after they've been punched in the face and then kicked to the curb and then stung. <laughs> and that's what's happened to a lot of these companies, you know, and to some extent you look at them and you're like, well, how, how far does this need to fall if I'm a long-term investor where, before I start to get interested, wait to use a Twilio and to, to get back to your question. So most people wouldn't be familiar with Twilio because it's a B2B software company. It does infrastructure. It's a fun name though, uh, but what Twilio's among its core products, but its core core product is messaging communication. So if you've ever messaged an Uber driver, they've messaged you or you've had a call, 
that runs through pipes, um, virtual pipes enabled by Twilio. And in range of customers, they serve many, 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 a lot of use cases. Business has 126% net revenue retention. It's founder led. Um, and 126% net revenue retention. What that means is um, even if they didn't pick up a single new customer for the year, a year later, they'd be roughly 126% the size of their analysis, so 26% larger in terms of sales just from growing with their existing customer base, which is phenomenal. Like by public market standards, that is elite double A plus dunking on everyone outstanding. Um, <clears throat> a year ago, or you go back to 2021, there was a stretch where we were selling 36 times forward revenue. That's a lot. Which is steep. <laughs> I think we need to agree on that. Yes. Uh, and, and the business was burning cash. Today, it's three times. Wow. So, was 36 too high? I thought so then. And I think it's pretty clear with hindsight that, yeah, it probably, the market yeah, overshot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but is three the right number? I don't think so. You know, I feel like it's it's been hit really hard. And you've got some of these high growth companies, you know, you take a Twilio, it's, it's moving more than 5% in a day past few weeks like multiple times just on shifts in interest rates but it's not even priced like a hyper growth stock anymore you know it's a three times forward revenue and you're like it's almost like an equity bond kind of business so that's been interesting to me to see that dynamic but you know and which by the way i bought some of that recently so <laughs> nice. thanks for the disclosure i appreciate it uh is it fair to say that that's kind of where we're at right now that that sentiment is so overwhelmingly dominant in the market that we're not really seeing i, I mean I, I what i'm trying to say i hate the phrase it's a stock pickers market because it always is right you can always pick stocks that beat the market by definition but when sentiment on an entire sector or an entire style almost is so dominant and so one directional at least for now or maybe it's not because you put your points up and down five percent but there seems to be very little discretion by those who are setting prices in the market on a daily basis when it comes yeah. to some of these businesses. And we've, right. the same here, you talk about, you know, companies and we'll go to the discount rates and the fact that future profits are worth less in a high inflation environment. They are by definition because the longer you have to wait, the more your money erodes while you wait if inflation is high. So that makes perfect sense. Um, we went to our discount rates as a, as a concept, but that's effectively the same kind of thing. We're seeing, yeah, the companies aren't going to make profits for five or 10 years are worth less and they should be. But we're seeing profitable businesses that are delivering profits right now <laughs> that are quality businesses on the ASX, for example, a business you've known before and loved others um, who have just been maybe not as badly hurt, but you kind of look at that and think, hang on. So this business, yes, it's called air quotes growth. Yes, it's air quotes tech, but at a fundamental level, it's not that different from Woolworths in the sense that it's delivering profits right now. It's growing moderately right now. And yet this thing has been absolutely trashed by the fact that it's just almost guilt by association is that is there opportunity there or is the opportunity actually to look further that and say you know what the, the good businesses that are down a little bit they don't deserve to be but man a twilio is down by it won't be an exactly you know 11 twelfths but you're 36 to, to three it's, times it's sales. 76 percent from its 52 week high right so you kind of want he's like oh man i get the opportunity to buy great quality tech company x down 15 percent for no good reason or I can actually stretch myself and go, I'm going to really go my loins here. I'm going to go for those things that are down by three quarters. And you know what? This yeah. could go down by another half before it gets good, but that's where the value think, is. How do you weigh that up? Yeah, I think you put that where I'm hurting your loins. Um, so this, I think it's really, I'll tell you what I've done and how I think of it, but I will say it's a very personal, you know, it's a very personal thing where you have to think about your your risk tolerance and your capacity for risk, you know, and capacity for risk. Um, there's, there's different dimensions of that. There's like financially, what can you actually risk, you know, in terms of, look, I've got a mortgage, we spend this much, I'm retired. So there's like protecting your downside as far as capacity, but then there's, you know, your tolerance as far as what you can take emotionally. And I've known plenty of investors, um, you know, mom and pops, uh, you know, millennials, post millennials, Gen X, like all the labels, mm -hmm. all the boomers, the whole thing. And I've known professional investors <laughs> across different categories yeah. who I've seen tap out 
um, during big down markets. And they were like, I just, I, I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, it happens. So <clears throat> I guess on the risk side, you, you need to think hard about what, how much risk you can take emotionally and financially. So that said, you know, going back in time to the GFC, my biggest lesson coming, well, there are lots and lots of lessons coming out, <laughs> but with, with a long amount of time to process and digest, I would say I was not nearly aggressive enough. And when I put money to work, I bought things like Procter and Gamble and P and G at the time was stupid cheap by, by the standards of such a high quality company, Procter and Gamble, which it may not, it's a household name, even if you don't know it because they own uh, <laughs> you know, a huge range of products. Half your kitchen, you half your laundry, half your bathroom will be Procter and Gamble products. Yeah, I, I counted back when I recommend. I think I had like thirteen different products there as a house. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're they're consumer products behemoth. Um, incredibly robust business, and I bought it at a price that at the time was stupendous, and it did really well in risk adjusted terms. It's just that had I gone further out on the risk spectrum, the reward for doing that was wildly more attractive at the time. And I was young, and I frankly I could have afford it to take one more risk. You know, it, I think P&G would have been an awesome purchase if I was 70. Um, but, you know, it was, it was difficult. I'm sure you still did very well, but. It did well, but I think my, one of my lessons, and we don't need to do the, it's a long list of them, but one was when the time comes next, I'm going to be more aggressive on taking risk. And, you know, so that's what I've been doing recently. So the companies I've been buying, you know, Twilio is a good proxy for them. There's still businesses that I think have tremendous core unit economics. So they may not be making money today, um, but at scale, I think these businesses will gush cash uh, because they have extremely loyal customers, blocked in ones, powerful network effects, unique and enduring IP. Um, and, you know, at scale, I think all that's going to work very well. But the share prices are just, <clears throat> a lot of these are down over 70%, you know, and I'm in a place, you know, personally, from a risk tolerance standpoint, where I can, I can take that and I'm comfortable with it. And I'm happy to sit there and, and write it out. And, you know, if inflation stays up around 8% in the States, then I'm probably going to take a short-term loss on those, right? Because what I think will happen is the Fed's going to get pressured to push rates higher, which will push down probably push down prices. But again, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat a benchmark over the next three months or have winning performance over three months. You know, I'm looking three plus years with the companies that I'm investing in today. So if you have the ability to do that, then, you know, I, I would frame it as like, you know, if, if you're not going to be looking at beating down high quality growth companies when they're down over 50%, when are you? Like, what is the thing? What is it that you're holding out? And if you're not going to, that's okay. But but if you're going well, to, yeah, that's time. totally fine. That's totally fine too. Like it's it's not for everybody. I should be clear about that. But I was listening to we'll just call a large financial network um, recently, and like every guest on said the exact same thing in a different way. And what they effectively said was, wait until the smoke is cleared, inflation comes down, stocks stop going down. And then you buy. And I'm like, well, wouldn't that be nice if we all knew exactly <laughs> the point? And you just happened to be the only person who noticed that yeah. the economy was doing better and inflation <laughs> had gone down. And things were locking off. What a wonderful thought. But it's, you know, you wait for that. I mean, you can, and you'll have less risk, but you'll also pay a much higher price than you would with people who are buying with more today. And I think there's an even closer example than the GFC because we saw during COVID some really smart, really thoughtful, really successful fund managers who said, I will wait until COVID's over and then I will start investing. Yeah. And that was what, 60, 70% ago in terms of the gain that had has been achieved since the bottom of the of the COVID kind of worst part of the market. The market's at 38% top to bottom. That implies a 70-ish percent recovery. And we have beaten that 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 pre-COVID high, right? So waiting for COVID to finish, which it still hasn't, has cost you a lot of money. And eventually you can invest with less risk. 
but you've missed that entire gain on the way through. And that's, by the way, if you sold at the bottom, you've, you've locked in whatever loss you had on the way through. So not only have you not bought back, but if you sold out, unless you sold at the very top, you sold somewhere on the way down, still haven't bought back in. Um, you, you're potentially in the hole for a, for a decent chunk. Well, to kind of get back to what you were talking about earlier, is kind of framing of, you know, there's a, a peak and there's a trough and people tend to, to take lessons at those points, right? But really, like the time to be taking lessons from TFC wasn't in March to, you know, with November 2008 or March 2009. Even though at the time I was writing articles about that, because I was like, oh, I should be taking lessons from this. The time to do that is years later, where you've had time to process and see it across the cycle. Mate, um, let's, let's go to inflation for a second, because this is the, you're not as old as me, but, but you're a student of history. And we are having a set of circumstances that we haven't seen since the early 1980s. The very real risk of what they call stagflation, the idea that we might have low, low uh, economic growth and high inflation at the same time. The central banks around the world are desperately trying to kill off inflation by jacking up rates at the same time as we have, you know, potentially a stuttering economy, talks of a US recession. In fact, I think Jerome Powell has almost all but said, I will cause recession if I have to, to kill inflation. He hasn't said those exact words, but it's not, it's not, it's not a big stretch to, to take that into account. In Fed speak, is yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said something like, it, "It will be, it will be painful, uh, but we will do it." It's like, okay, that's pretty much that's that's close enough. Um, where does that leave an investor, mate? Where does that leave you? Where does that leave us as a, as an investment as investors generally, not not us at the moment, just us, everyone listening who's who's got their money in the market? Um, as it, we haven't. It's it, inflation is not unusual. It's it's unusual recently. We've had thirty odd years of almost no inflation, but for the centuries before that, or at least a century before that, inflation coming and going was a thing. So in fact, we haven't gone to a new normal. We've gone back to the old normal after a, after a you know effectively a generational hiatus. Um, how are you thinking about investing in this sort of environment, both now and also over the next three, six, twelve months, two years, three years? Um, how do you factor it in? How do you think about that in terms of the returns, the sorts of companies, the way you put your money to work? Well, former colleague of ours, Morgan Alsel, wrote a great piece that I think Scott and I have both referenced many times, which is them. Um, Effectively, there's always something to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at any point in time, you could go back a year, two years, however far. And Scott and I both, you know, appear on different media and podcasts. And there's always something. There's always something people worry about. And yet over a very long time, markets go up and to the right. They do it in a squiggly line. Um, and in the short run, it can be painful or euphoric. But, you know, <laughs> over a long time, that's the direction. It's up and to the right. So I try to keep that in mind as, as much as possible um, and, you know, execute the way I invest and the way I think and the way I approach investing all through that framework of just putting time on my side and trying to back really high quality companies that will thrive across different environments. They, they won't necessarily be the ones that will do best in that specific environment. Um, if anything, I think people who do that, you're essentially just trying to trade the moment and, you know, every study you'll look at will show <laughs> people who yeah. trade more on average have worse performance <clears throat> than people who trade less. And it's just, it's so common sense, but people who are trying to be nimble and get in and out, you know, get an edge through, through speed, look, the data just says you're extremely unlikely to do that extremely. And maybe you're Jim Simons and you're this brilliant mathematician uh, and you have this huge quant fund and you can put up great performance. But unless you have like a PhD in mathematics, um, I don't know, show some humility about your ability to predict where rates are going to go in the next couple of months. <clears throat> to be honest with you, my prediction around it is probably not much better than yours. I, I don't think I have a, a huge edge as, as a macro investor. But what I, I think I can do is control my emotions and invest across a horizon that's longer than that one situation and acknowledging like my goal is to not be the best performing investor over the next quarter, you know, or, or even year. Um, you know, it's over many years that I want to, you know, achieve my own financial goals or whatever my own targets are. Right. So I guess to, you know, kind of set all that like on the table, um, 
Yeah, look, I think if rates do, if inflation stays up around here, it's hard to picture the Fed and other central banks not having to push harder. And they're trying to try to job on their way out of doing it. But, you know, it's, it's really worth remembering that a lot of governments of multiple levels, you know, from local to the federal or national state governments, commonwealths, take your pick, um, have indebted themselves pretty heavily over, you know, since, say, the GFC to the present. And it is not really in anyone's collective interest for interest rates to run higher. Like, yes, you could say lenders, but the, you know, how is that going to work for the rest of the book that they own, right? Not great. So, you know, like if you're a homeowner and you've got a floating rate mortgage, you're not rooting for higher rates. I mean, Australia, you know, as, as you and I talked about many times before we could no longer talk about it, um, you know, it's, it's a heavily indebted country, heavily tied to mortgages, right? And, and there's a lot of interest rate exposure there. And, you know, the RBA is sitting there and, you know, they're not oblivious to that. And if they suddenly went all Paul Volcker, so Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Fed back in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was the one who choked inflation to death in America. But in doing so, hammered the economy, like really rattled it. It was essentially the end of the Carter presidency. Not that it was going all that great to begin with, um, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, it just it really hurt the economy. Central bankers, no one wants to be that guy. Um, when you look back at the, over the history of central banking, I spent a lot of time, particularly in the States, I, I won't pretend to have deep knowledge of you know, the story, history of the RBA. But with the Fed, central banks in the Fed, they're almost always late and they almost always overshoot. And they also like to keep their jobs and they have reputations that they'd <laughs> like to protect. And, yep. you know, Volcker was, you know, just like you don't see many politicians who are willing to come in and, you know, thumb their nose at the what they'll do. Yeah, yeah they, yep. most politicians take the easy route, right? And Volcker didn't. Most central bankers don't have that conviction. But even then, to Jay Powell's, to Jerome Powell, like, or our buddy Jay Powell, like, easier said than done for him to suddenly go out and squash it, right? Because mm. if he were to aggressively raise rates, what what happens, right? Um, borrowers get hurt badly. The market, if you think the market's falling a lot now, try throwing on, you know, another five, six percentage <laughs> points to the Fed funds rate. And then, yeah. then that's pain. Like a chicken share process. Yeah. Um, home prices, which by the way, are already... You know, it looks like we've kind of reached the second full top in the States after a pretty big boom. Um, so, you know, federal interest rates would also be not interest rates, but the actual dollars paid of interest um, to debt holders would spike. And so I guess what I'm saying is they really don't want to let rates run away. So you do have that working for you as an investor. But again, to go back, like, that's that's not my edge personally is is making that call it's it's more about getting the businesses right and managing my risk um and if i do that well and take a long-term horizon then i feel like i'll be fine joe this has been a fascinating conversation that's dawning on me or has been dawning on me that i'm not going to get through even half of the questions i want to ask you so uh i'm gonna have you back on the podcast if you'll be so kind at some future point i got the time Uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, I want to ask you a lot more about how you invest, some of the things that are important. I, I have a list of questions in front of me that I'm not going to get to most of, but super great value and, and you're too good an investor not to. So if you'll if you'll spend me some time, another another point, I would happily, uh, gladly have you back on if you, if you would. Um, in the meantime, though, mate, while we, while we get towards the end of the podcast, you have returned to your native America, uh, not the same city you left from. You're now in Austin, Texas. Um, yeah. Just curious as to what, 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 are you, what are you filling your time with now? You went from being the chief investment officer of Lakehouse Capital and a really successful business, uh, very stressful, I'm sure, very high high impact, lots going on. Uh, you move back home with your family. What, what does Joe Mega do in his days these days? I have a lot fewer titles. Um, <laughs> so I'm just doing private investing. Um, nice. You know, to go back in time, I love Lake House. I love the team. It was a fantastic experience. Leaving was a very difficult decision. Uh, but moving back to America was 
know, my wife and I were 100% conviction on doing it. We loved Australia. We had an amazing nine years there. I wouldn't change a thing about that or, or the journey, but for us, um, you know, family wise, we, yeah. we just wanted to be 10,000 miles closer to the rest of our family, you know, and we've, there are a lot of expats, you know, we know who were abroad, lived in Australia, moved home or Australians who were abroad and came back and a lot of expats around the world, you know, made similar choices. Um, so left firm, you know, Donnie's the Donnie Buchanan. We started together as CIO. Donnie's great. He's a great friend, great investor. Um, and you know, I still talk to him and you know, we're friendly and I stay in touch with the team and we're rooting for him. Um, but yeah, what I'm doing now is just investing our own money. So it's a mix of public equities and, and private. So I've been doing some startup investing. So like early stage stuff, uh, like pre-seed, seed stage. So little, little petite things that um, have just started working towards getting product market fit. Um, you know, they've maybe got a blank site and making some traction um, and need some capital to grow. And, you know, I enjoy talking to founders and, you know, talking strategy with them. And I think for the ones I talk to, it's useful that, you know, basically we've spent many years just tearing apart businesses, right? And it's all we do. And I like trying to be useful and helpful. And so it's been really fun for me to just, you know, get a little more immersed in that side of the market. Um, and I think it's been interesting too, to kind of take a public market hat to the private side. Uh, but yeah, so I'm just doing that for myself, doing that, um, to be honest, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, you know, we'll see what happens, right? But that's that's what I'm doing and, and I'm enjoying it. A heck of a journey, mate, from Procter & Gamble to investing in in uh, product market fit startups uh, and, and the journey, journey is only not even probably half over you've packed a remarkable amount into a, you know, a short but incredibly successful career thus far um, Joe I want to finish off with our favourite four questions nothing too taxing I know you've listened to the podcast multiple times so you'll know all the answers to these questions and uh, if you do listen to um, Barry Ritholtz's Masters in Business I've stolen some of them directly from him because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery so uh, let's let's start with one of his uh, what are you reading and watching at the moment mate I know you're a, I know you're a big streamer you're a massive reader uh, what's kind of occupying your leisure time when it comes to media consumption? You know what's interesting? I We don't have a TV anymore. We went for a long time without a TV. We don't have a TV now, and that has really sucked away a lot of my media consumption. Um, <laughs> Not a bad thing either. Well, I am reading a lot. So I am now on book nine of Wheel of Time. I don't know if any it would see the Amazon show or read the books. I get into real time. Uh, Nate Weissar, uh, Molecular Lesson Management, old friend, recommended it. To be honest with you, I'm so pot committed in the series of books now. <laughs> I think they're like, I, I'm not sure, it's like 14 or 16 of them. <laughs> I think the author died before he finished them all, and oh, okay. a colleague or friend finished them. Right. But right. Uh, the thing is, I just kept going, and at some point, I was like, you know, if I don't stop now, <laughs> I'm going to feel like I'm, I'm pot committed, and yep, I know yep. it's some cost. I know, but now I'm like, look, I'm this, I'm far along, this far along with Rand, <laughs> and the whole story. I've just, I got to keep going. So you got to say it through. So I'm on book nine or ten, and I don't remember which number. Uh, it's all just. <laughs> the wheel of time, there are no, no beginnings or endings, and that's kind of how it's reading it. Um, and yeah, like, you know, I'm watching more, watching more NBA, being back here, enjoying the playoffs. Um, and who's your team? Uh, I am, well, I like the Bucks and I like the Celtics. There are a lot of teams I like. I say I'm more of like a, um, a fan of the league at large, and there are a lot of players I really like. So I love Giannis. I'm a big fan of his. I uh, like Jason Tatum a lot, and it was kind of a bummer to see them bump into each other in the playoffs. Um, but yeah, just the NBA is such a high level play. I've been really enjoying that, um, and I've got like a really long list of movies and shows I want to watch. But just with uh, the kids and the move and everything, it just keeps getting longer. But um, Irina and I are planning to go see Top Gun this weekend. We're oh, I've got to say that. about so. it. Got, <laughs> I think everyone. And it's actually rated really well on the Rotten Tomatoes and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, apparently it's a decent one. Because it was one of those things where it's like 
this is either going to be brilliant or we're going to be really, really sorry they screwed the entire franchise yeah. up by trying to, you know, re- restore the magic. But hopefully, hopefully it's good. I look forward to talking to you about that when we've both seen it. Um, mate, you, you're, a, you're a bottom-up investor, but you're also a trend watcher. You, you are a keen student of business. What trends are you watching? Have you got your eye on? Are you seeing unfold? It, it can be business. It can be investing. It can be just society at large. Um, again, I'm not. Don't want to suggest you're 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 necessarily a trend following investor, though. Sometimes you may be. Uh, but just just curious as to kind of what you've got your eye on. Like that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I hear what you're saying. I think what I'm, um, what I'm kind of following now is what has been really bombed out, and that's on the public side. I, I think on the private side. Um, it's been really interesting to see how just in the past couple of weeks, like really the venture capital industry just seemed more or less completely agnostic or oblivious to what was happening in public markets <laughs> You're right. up until about two weeks ago. And I, I was a little confused by that, honestly, because I was like, you know, at some point this affects both ends, you know, the, on the one extreme end, you've got companies that are listing they're huge, successful venture investments, and they list. But if you know public market prices have come down a lot, you're not going to be able to list them as you know at dear price you want. You're probably going to delay it, so that returns for for VCs. The other end of the spectrum, you've got angel investors, which is more kind of what I'm doing on the private side. And you know they look at it and they're like, "Well, look, you know I've got a pretty broad opportunity set here because I can invest in public stocks too. And why would yeah, I?" Yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, if I can invest in a you know, really yeah. high-quality listed company that's down 80% and still growing at pretty healthy rates that I get you know, daily liquidity on, well, <laughs> well yeah. so yeah, 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 yeah. really yeah. just the last two weeks, it's like there was this thunderclap that everybody suddenly started scrambling. And even this week, I talked to founders uh, who are raising, and I have so much respect for them, but I could tell for the first time that they, I could tell they had less demanding expectations around valuations and were willing to be flexible. So that's kind of where, yeah, it's kind of where I'm at right now. We had a couple of uh, grocery delivery, you know, there's one and two are grocery delivery kind of businesses that are around these days. Uh, two of them went belly up here about a month or so ago. And one of them in particular said, we could get in as much capital as we wanted last October. And now we just couldn't. We just can't get. We can't get cash. No, no one will give us more money to get this business going. And that was the space of of, of six months. So uh, I think that's a global a global issue, mate. Um, I normally would ask about what advice you'd give someone who's interested in a job in your industry. In this case, investing. But I'm gonna I'm gonna switch this up a little bit. I'm gonna say, what's one piece of advice you would give investors out there? What if you said if you could get everyone in a room and say, right, just just this this one thing. Do this. Do this better. Do this differently. Do this for a start. What's your best advice to, to an investor listening right now? Um, I know it's a very big question. Sorry. No, I'm just trying to think of one thing. Yeah. Um, the most important thing is how Marx might say. I can I can tell you what I've told. Being back in the US, I've caught up with some friends who I hadn't seen in a long time, and, and they've been getting up for advice. And I'll tell them something that, that may kind of fly in the face of what you and I spend all our time doing is trying to generate outsized performance to pick in stocks, which obviously I think adds value or I wouldn't have been spending 20 years doing it. And then <laughs> do it for do yourself. It. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think you can add value doing it. Um, but I think for most investors, it's less important. I wouldn't so much focus on trying to squeeze out an extra bit of return it's more about getting like the big things right that sound vanilla, but are so important. So spending less than you earn, like living within your means, um, you know, that's something incredibly within the control of most people. Um, but, you know, just watching that, have a budget, save money, and then put it to work. And then when you do it, do it in a tax efficient way, you know, Keep your fees reasonable, um, diversify, and then don't screw it up by tinkering too much. You know, <laughs> don't try to trade yeah. around a lot. Yeah. Find a strategy yeah. that you can stick with and do it. And it's all. It's just like to use a you know American football. You know, so blocking and tackling. You know, it's not like about having this wild trick play. It's like no, just block well, 
tackle well, like do that. And, and that's, you know, it's probably three quarters of the game. And then once you've already done all that and you're, you're saving money on a regular basis, you're putting it to work consistently, you're not being emotional, you've got a you know, good diverse strategy, do all that. Then like, okay, now I can get into trying to, you know, to get some better performance. And I'd be happy to see more people, you know, try to, to do it in that sequence rather than trying to hope for one stock that's going to, you know, be the, the life changing event for them. Mate, we are on a unity ticket there. And I think listeners, as you listen to Joe say that, remember, this is the guy who has been a spectacularly great investor who has made a lot of money for a lot of people who followed with him or invested with him. Uh, but even despite that, getting the basics right, so incredibly, incredibly important. I appreciate you saying that, Joe. Uh, mate, let, let's finish off with something. You know I'm an optimist. I think you're an optimist too. Um, what is something or what are you most optimistic about? Um, I'm, I don't know. I, I get to spend a lot of time with my kids now and, and that's refreshing. And I don't know. It's just being around kids is, makes me optimistic when I talk to founders you know, almost on a daily basis. These are people who, you know, they're betting their egos, money, careers, um, you know, sometimes relationships on building companies and it's inspiring. And I have so much respect for that. And, you know, to just see that so often, yeah, it, it makes me optimistic and excited. And, you know, even though, you know, markets are puking all over themselves and, you know, that's, that's all ugly. There are still people out there right now who are building businesses, growing businesses, hustling to try and make that happen and taking risks and being optimistic and hiring and yeah, all that all that keeps me optimistic. The next billion dollar businesses are being built in someone's garage right now, which is a pretty cool yeah. idea. And it was the same 10 years ago and 10 years before that and 10 years before that. So uh, a lovely note to finish. What I'm going to say is the first conversation with Joe Mager and we will have another one if you'll be so kind uh, Joe I really really appreciate it it was just great to catch up quite honestly but I really appreciate your time with me and with our listeners for The Good Oil thank you for joining us Joe Mager this podcast is hosted by me Scott Phillips produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly listener